Um, how does, uh, how do these things usually turn out like audio wise with zoom? Cause I've thought about doing like stuff like this, but, uh, well, listen, welcome. Welcome <laughs> to Red River podcast. I just hit record. So Thank you. Oh, uh, so we're on? We're... Yeah, we're, we're on right now. This is episode 69. Um, okay. this is Kevin Egan, uh, from beyond 1.6 band last crime. Um, so welcome man. And, and to get into the conversation that you just started, ask me about the zoom. <laughs> yeah yeah i was asking you how the uh like audio wise like how like uh how do they come how do they come out so i i'm not a fan of the audio of it but like at a time like this um it just seems like the easiest thing to do you know yeah, um, yeah. you know i'm i'm not a big like i'm not gonna keep keep the video we're just gonna pull the audio out of this Right. Usually right. like, you know, it would be like, like what we did with George with if I ruled the world when you were on that. Right. So yep. it was kind of like that. But um, I mean, it's let's put it this way. Uh, everyone's doing it. You know, like I was listening to the Stern show a couple of days ago and he had on uh, Billy Corgan and yeah. uh, the phone drop and he's just like, oh, I can't hear you. Oh, I can't hear you. And I'm thinking like, OK, so this is like the biggest show on the planet. Um, right. And we're all kind of like, uh, you know, we're all trying to figure out the technology, but it's hey, we're all doing it. So do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think, you know, at this point, everyone's stuck at home and it's the only way to make things these things happen at this point. So it's cool. Yeah. I mean, because I I listen to certain podcasts I listen to, um, like Joe Dante's podcast. I listen to a lot. I fucking love and, Joe Dante. I didn't know he had a podcast. Yeah, it's it's great. And, you know, sometimes the the interview, you could tell that there's someone's someone at least one of them is in a is in a studio somewhere, you know, with some like really nice microphones and stuff. And a lot of times it's just you could tell they're on a Zoom call, but yeah. it doesn't matter. It's all about like the content and about the conversation and stuff, you know. So for me, like I've been doing it on the phone um, because I think the audio is better on the phone. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's just the visual. Like I see you, we can see the vocal cues. It's a little different. Um, but yeah, I mean, like it's 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 well enough. And and you know, once I dump it into my uh, editor, right, I could just fix it as best I can. Um, yeah. But wow, Joe Dante, man, that's he's what I love about Joe Dante is he's such a goddamn cinephile. He yeah, he loves movies, and that's why he's a perfect. Uh, host for like yeah. a podcast like he like he knows everything and like so with you know there's this other guy who does it with them and then you know they usually have a guest and use at least once or twice during the during the conversations they they always have to re they have to always have to go to joe as like a reference like yeah. and then he'll be like oh yeah 1957 yeah <laughs> you know, hammer did this movie and he knows all the actors he knows about all their lives yeah he knows about the entire production and let you know like he's 
I mean, he rivals Scorsese as far as like how much he knows about like movies, you know? Yeah, he's he's I, I heard him on like the Mick Garris podcast. Um, yes. Yeah. So Mick is great, too. So that's great, too. Yeah. Them two going back and forth is so much. It's like so much fun. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I got to listen to that. I Maybe I forgot he had a podcast. But uh, so listen, uh, man, just to get everyone up to speed, I mean, you put out a documentary about your band, um, your your first band for the most part, when you were like a teenager, Holbrook, New York. Um, so just kind of get us up to speed as to what you did. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I was in, uh, in from 1987 to 1989, I was in Beyond. Uh, we started it in Holbrook, New York, um, which that is in the Broadway Ave. Ave. Right off Broadway, Tom lived right off Broadway Ave in, in Holbrook. Um, I lived, I grew up near the expressway, like okay. sort of like, like on the Lake Ronkakuma border. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but, you know, there weren't a lot of people into hardcore back then out there. Um, it was pretty like slim pickings. And then, uh, so once I got into hardcore, I knew how I had to become friends with Tom. Uh, he played in this band called Third Planet with a couple of guys who ended up in 1.6 band, uh, Lance and Mike. And Lance actually played on the Beyond demo. He was, he was in Beyond uh, briefly. And uh, so then, so I met Tom. We, we knew we wanted to do a band together. We did this, we did this band. Uh, we, we were more part of, there wasn't really a Long Island scene yet back then. There was more, uh, it was more of a, there was the scene was in the city, was downtown at CBGB's. And that's really where we wanted to, you know, be a part of. So how do so, you, how do you get from like Holbrook, which is so fucking bumblefuck East because I'm from Selden. So I know right. um, like how, how does how does that process go? And what were the local shows like at that time in '87? I was so young. Uh, out 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 on Long Island, out like Eastern Long Island, yeah. there were there initially there were not many shows beyond beyond pl only played two shows out there, like two official sh hardcore shows out there. We played uh, at this bar in Smithtown with absolute. It was Absolution and Beyond, and I can't remember the third band, but. It was the only time we ever played with Absolution, I'm pretty sure. But uh, it was this bar on Route 25. I don't remember who, who booked it. It was near the train station. Uh, there weren't even like a lot of people there, but uh, you know, it was us and Absolution, uh, sort of like playing for each other. And then there was and Sundance was the big was the one place that had uh, that had hardcore shows. So yeah, Sundance was a big metal club, but hardcore was becoming a thing so uh so they started having hardcore shows and they were pretty successful like like right off the bat because there were a lot of kids who weren't going into the city or they were, they were sort of craving for that like uh, that experience but on long island and uh and frank cariola who ran sundance he 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 liked he liked hardcore enough and I guess he saw the the potential of it, like you know. So so there were show there were shows out there at Sun Sundance was primarily, and then I mean before before like Nassau County is a different story. Nassau County had shows pretty early on, like the like the right right the right track in shows. What were some of the bands at that point, like that like some of your peers that you were coming up from, like out here? Uh. <laughs> There weren't too many. There weren't too many for from from our area. 
they're or really like members. Like, I mean, some of those early members probably went on to do other things probably later on, like the 90s. Early members of Beyond? No, just like in general, like, like just musicians locally. Oh, locally. Uh, you know, the only, the only people that I knew that were into hardcore out by where we lived was, uh, was Steve Driscoll, who went on to be in Scapegrace yeah. yep. and Half Man. Like Steve, like, so Steve and uh, uh, this guy, Dan Morgan, they used to, they used to give us ride, like they used to give us rides or sometimes we would find ourselves at CVs without a car. And instead of taking the train home, which was a lot, took a lot longer than it does these days, but uh, you know, they would give us a ride home. So Steve Driscoll, you know, when I think of the people who's from, from the Suffolk County that I was my close proximity, who were going to hardcore shows, it was really only Steve Dr it was like Steve Driscoll and and Dan Morgan primarily okay. who would go. Um there was there was this guy Aldo who lived in Holbrook. I didn't put this in the doc documentary and I really should have, but we, no one kind of knows what happened to Aldo. Unfortunately, he's sort of like fallen off the map and, and no one knows what happened to this guy. Where's Aldo? But he lived, he was older. He was like 24 when we were like 17. So <laughs> he was like an adult. He had like a full grown mustache. You know, he looked like someone's dad. Yeah. And he, he actually gave me my, fr my first ride to CBGB's. So the first, the first show that I ever went to at CBGB's was, uh, was, Warzone, uh, uh, Uniform Choice, and I can't remember the opening bands. Uh, Pagan Babies, I think maybe was the opening band. But uh, I, had, I had become friends with Tom. He's like, oh, I can get us, to, I can get us this ride to CBGB's this Sunday, and I was dying to go to CBGB's and see what this, you know, the hype was about. And so he's like, this guy, and Tom was, you know, Tom is, Tom is still to this day, he's, you know, he's a you know, he just pulls stuff like out of nowhere. And you're just like, how did he manage this? You know, <laughs> uh, he, he's just, you know, there are just certain people who are like that. And, and, and you know, and Tom's definitely one. So he's like, he's like, oh, there's, uh, he's this guy from around the block, Aldo. He's going to drive us to see these. I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. Turns out Aldo is like, you know, he looks like he's like 40. And he's, you know, and, and Aldo has this friend, Tony, who's in the car. And Tony is like, a punk like tony is dressed like a punk and we were you know there were there were already some pretty strict dividing lines between hardcore and punk at the time like sorry that's my cat yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> like back like back then um uh you know like like already mohawks were already out you know considered outdated and hardcore was more like visceral and you know even even violent in like a lot of ways so there was like that dividing line so but this guy, Tony, he was sort of like part of the, the older, he was older and he wanted to prove to us how punk he was. So, you know, halfway to CB's, we're driving down the expressway and Tony's like, pull over. I have to go to the bathroom. And, but we're stuck in traffic. And so Aldo can't get over. So he's like, just stop the car. So he stops the car and Tony just gets out and he's in the middle of the long island expressway like at the like on the divider like and i think he was just trying to impress us to show us like yeah, how yeah, punk yeah. he was yeah. and like you know tom and i were just like this guy's a joker you know yeah. like, we just thought this guy was like such a clown um sometimes but, when you when you when you have to piss in traffic or or even shit it's uh it's it's pretty dire when you're stuck on like the bqe you're stuck yeah you're stuck in traffic it's pretty you know like 
you, these days, you know, you have like water bottles and stuff in the car. You could at least, you know, as far as like, you know, if you have to pee real bad. I've never done bottle. a water bottle. I've never. So you've done water bottles. I mean, I would imagine you do that on tour all the time. But like, I, I've never. I don't. I, I could just never do the water bottle. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've just had, uh, you know, I've had jobs where I've had to drive for for a living, and there's plenty of times I've been stuck in traffic, and I'm like, shit, I gotta, I gotta pee, and and getting out and peeing on the side of the road or whatever isn't really an option. So like, you just have to, you know, be creative. Or yeah. Well, where, <laughs> but, where's, uh, where's Aldo? Where's Aldo? That's what we got to find out. Where's Aldo? Yeah, it's funny. Like we actually, we've actually talked about <clears throat> putting a book together called Where's Aldo, because. <laughs> He and like I said, I should have really focused on Aldo in the documentary a little bit because if you look at like a lot of the old live beyond pictures, Aldo can somehow be spotted in a lot of those pictures, but like not obviously, just sort of like in the background. Like you'll look at a picture like a hundred times, and then one day you'll just look at it and be like, Oh my god, there's Aldo, like he's in the background. So he's in he was in like a ton of those pictures. Um, so yeah, there there really were like it was like it was like Tom, like Tom and me. Uh, and then Vic got into hardcore soon after, like he was, like he was, uh, Vic Takara, who would eventually become Beyond's bass player. And he went to high school with us too. Um, he was into, he got into metal. He was into metal when we, he and I first met. And then, uh, and then he got into hardcore afterwards. Uh, but he, he, he actually played, he, he sang and, or he, yeah, he sang and played guitar. Like with he he taught himself play guitar within a month like like no joke like within a month he he knew how to play like all of Master of Puppets and like he was already writing songs he was like a he was like a musical genius in like a lot of ways That's so he had he had a he had a band with the drummer for one point six bands called um, Socially Incorrect and they had they were they sounded like Metallica and like suicidal tendencies and stuff like that and Tom even sang on one of the songs. But when Tom and I were really into hardcore, then Vic sort of like got into it too. And he sort of trailed along. Um, what were some of the, like, like, so as far as like you guys getting really into hardcore, obviously for metal, like what were some of the bands that really just influenced to push you in that direction? Uh, for me, it was uh, Minor Threat, Youth of Today. When I first heard Youth of Today, so this was, speaking of uh, like Eastern Long Island, I mean, you know, Record Stop, Record Stop. Oh, yeah. Back yeah. Then when, when Record Stop was on Portion Road, yeah. that was only, that was about a 15 minute bike ride for me. It was really close to my house. And so, so uh, Record Stop was hugely important for my musical development. So uh, Teddy, I don't know if you know Teddy. Um, Teddy, uh, he used to work at Record Stop. He, he was a punk. He had like a, he had a mohawk. He worked at, he was the only kid who worked at Record Stop. It, Record Stop was, was like these like guys who were like in their 40s and like ran this record stop, re, uh, record shop. And they were, they were just kind of like, you know, grumpy old men who knew a lot about music, but they were just always grumpy and, and really surly when you tried to talk to them. And <laughs> except Teddy worked there. And Teddy put together this section in the back of the store for for hardcore and punk records and it was it was just they gave him a little spot and it was just it was probably no bigger than my desk right here but you know there was probably like maybe like 30 records and it was all the punk and hardcore records that they were selling at record stop and that really was sort of 
huge to my musical development, like in, in a hardcore uh, context, because I was already a metalhead. I was, I was, I already gone through like Metallica and Slayer and all those bands by the time I was like 15. And I was looking for something that was more intense than that. I was looking for like something more intense. And the stories I heard about hardcore in at CBGB's, you know, I, I, I thought maybe that might be where I want to go to look for something that's even more intense than like Slayer. Yeah. And so, so I found, I remember going, I used to go through those records and I remember the, the, um, the seven seconds record, the crew really appealed to me because it's his, it, the singer's name was Kevin, just like mine. And I thought Kevin seconds, I thought that was clever. The name was better seven seconds. And it said something about positivity on the back. And, and I was, and I was sort of like a, like a, also attracted to uh, the idea of like people singing about positivity, positivity and stuff like that. So, so I bought that record and somebody there, you know what, now that I think about it, there were, there were like a couple of skinheads at our high school. There was this, there was these brothers, Dominic and Shane, I forget their last name, but they were, they were into hardcore and they were going into the city and going to CBs. And so they, one of them, I was talking to one of them one day and they told me, they're the ones who told me about Youth of Today. That was the first time I heard about Youth of Today. So when I saw the Youth of Today record at Record Stop, I was like, oh, I was like, I, was like, I gotta get this. You know, I wanna see what this is like. And, you know, hearing, hearing Ray Capo's voice for the first time, just that growl and that, to me, I guess now if you listen to it, it doesn't seem as extreme as like Slayer or any of those bands. But to me at the time, it seemed more extreme than Slayer. Just, Why do you think that just, is? Uh, it, it, was just, it was just so, rat like, if you think about hardcore, hardcore doesn't sound as radical now because we've had 30 years to ingest it. And to and it's been you know it's sort of been normalized in a lot of ways you know and and you know it, in the nineties the hard, hardcore scene became like a social scene too it wasn't just like a thing about music it was like where you went to hang I mean it used to be a social scene but I mean social scene where like if you could even go to a hardcore show in the nineties to like meet girls if you wanted yeah. to where like in the 80s that was not the case like uh -huh. there were there were girls and women at those shows but they were usually like unapproachable because they seemed really tough and you didn't want <laughs> they probably could have kicked your ass or they were <laughs> someone else's girlfriend and you did not want to go down that path either because yeah as, gotten, as, as soon as he gets back from the pit he'll fight you <laughs> yeah exactly so like you know but in the 90s it became like this sort of like social sort of thing uh so it seemed but in the 80s hardcore it seemed really really radical like the fast beats and uh just the the, the way they were singing you know uh, i th i mean i think of youth today and i think of the band straight ahead with the singer tommy carroll i think those two bands just with their like really fast beats and they're 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 really super aggressive vocals, like and singing, you know, like like that. Just like it does again. It doesn't sound no, but also like great. the the production too. Like back then, like when I first heard like uh you know Black Flag or something, like I it was just like it was just so different. Like, like you hear it and you're just like holy shit, you like this. It, it wasn't as heavy as Slayer at the time or whatever, uh, but it, there was something about it that just seemed uglier. Um, 
and just more raw. But I think it had a lot to do with the production and the actual just like for like it was just ferocious on certain things. So I think it just it felt like a real thing, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly I think that's exactly right. Like the, the certain ferocity to it and um, and the, the fact that it wasn't uh, produced, you yeah. know, very slick way. It was everything was very raw. Um, and it's, it was it's youth culture. You know, it was like total youth right. culture, like like when hip hop first came out. Um, but like, yeah, it's just like you, man. So I, I remember growing up and just hating certain bands because I felt like that's what like my parents would listen to, you know? So it was just like, oh, it's like, I hate Led Zeppelin. Uh, I'd rather listen to Minor Threat. As you get older, you realize it's stupid. But like, that's what it was. It was just that appeal to me. It's like, this is my shit. This is your shit. You know, and that's that was the appeal. It's like, okay, this is our stuff. This is this is what we like. This is, you know, and you could hear, you know, uh, not so much youth, youth of today because I, I don't really know too much of them. I was more into like the more dissonant stuff. Like I said, like Greg Ginn with Black Flag and stuff like that. Uh, but also like Minor Threat, like blew my socks off. Like when I first heard Minor Threat, I'm like, how is every song awesome? Like how? Yeah. How is every song yeah. awesome? I don't understand. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, there there is not one minor song, minor threat song that isn't great. Um, Ian's voice was a was a huge influence for me when I first heard Ian Mackay sing. Like that just that spoke to me in so many ways. Uh, and music, you know, I I think minor threat was a big influence on Beyond because minor threat was pretty musical. Like they were yeah. out of all the out of, out of that first wave of hardcore bands from like '79 to like you know, 83 or whatever, they like minor threat might've been like the most musical out of those bands, uh, mostly because of Brian Baker's guitar. And Brian Baker was a huge influence on Tom when we first started writing songs. So you could, so that, hear, it. You could hear it as, as, like from like do it on um, where yeah, it's yeah. it, a lot of like an unconventional stuff. Like there was like the hardcore stuff, but then there was also like a left field where you're just like, you know, and, and I told you before, like to me, Tom, you know, when I think of my favorite guitarists on the planet, um, and, and it really started with me with Quicksand. When I heard Slip, I'm like, who? Because Slip came out, I was like third, I was like 13 or 14, and it just like blew my fucking mind because he wasn't overplaying, but what he was playing was so perfect. Um, yeah. It just it just blew my mind, and then I went back and listened to all his all, all his other stuff. So was he was Tom always kind of like that much of a genius? He Yes. Yeah. I mean, he, he had a couple of songs already when I, when I became friends with him, he would, like I said, he played in this band third planet with the yeah. guys from 1.6 band. So, and, and, you know, Mike from 1.6 band talks about it in my documentary, how, you know, Tom had, he already had some songs together and he was, you know, he was his own genius in like a lot of ways. Um, I think Tom did learn a lot from Mike from, from that short time that he did that band with Mike, because Mike is a tremendous guitar player. Like Mike is just like, you know, I mean, out of all my friends, you know, I have a couple of friends who I call like musical, like geniuses and, and Mike's definitely one of them. And so I think Tom learned a lot from, from Mike. And, but that being said, I think Tom was able to package things better like, like, like Mike has this amazing musical ability and he's a really good songwriter. Some of his, like, uh, I mean, you know, he, he wrote all the riffs for 1.6 band. I mean, it, that was a collaborative thing, but he wrote, 
you know, I mean, he, but Tom was really great at sort of compartmentalizing everything and putting everything in the, in the context of a 90 second yeah. hardcore song, you know? Yeah. And that, um, so he was really great at that. Yeah. And that's like, uh, you know, yeah, that that's huge too. Like, you know, it's, it's like songwriting is such a big thing. And, and when you're younger, like you, I guess like, you know, like a lot of the stuff, like I remember you just like write differently, man. You just like try different things. And, and as you get older, I feel like, you know, um, you go from, from like, you know, like stuff that you guys were doing in 1.6 band, but then eventually like, you'll hear something like Tom Petty's free fall and you're like, that's fucking genius, <laughs> you know? But like back then, if I heard free fall and I'm like, I need to add 10 other parts to this, you know? So yeah. It, it's, it's, just, it's a, yeah, it's about, I think it's a balance. I mean, uh, you know, after once 1.6 band was over with, and I, you know, I love the challenge of playing with those guys. And I love the challenge of, you know, I mean, those guys were into mixed meters and, and, you know, odd time signatures and stuff like that. And it, that was a huge challenge to try and keep up with those guys doing that. And I, and I really enjoyed, but after, but after that band broke up, all I wanted to do was play an acoustic guitar because I wanted to sort of like simplify things again, yeah. you know, and then I get sick of that and I want to learn, you know, and then I want to learn more about music to, to, you know, to make things more interesting. So then you go, I go back to that kind of stuff to, so, you know, but it's like a back and forth. So yeah. go, like, what was the catalyst to make this documentary? Because from what I gather from the movie is um, it seemed like you said it was just playing that being asked to, to do that reunion set. Is, is that really where it all started? That's where it's, that's where the documentary started. Yeah. Um, we were asked to, we were asked to play out in California with uh, the Red Fest. It was their 40th, no, I'm sorry, 30th anniversary. So 80, this was 2017. So yeah, it was their 30th anniversary and they asked us to play and they offered to, um, they offered, the promoter had offered to pay for our plane tickets. And I had just that day read about, uh, train uh, taking a train across the country and how cheap it was. So I was like, let me see if they'll pay for a train ticket instead of a plane ticket. So they did. Cause it was, a, it was pretty much the same price. It was maybe $20 more for, uh, for one way from New York to California. So I took the train from New York to California. How long was that? I'm sorry. How long was that? That was like three and a half days. It wasn't, it was, it was, quicker than I thought it was going to be. It was, I think it was three and a half days. It wasn't like, it was pretty cool. It's, it's cool when you go out West, like when you get, when you get out to like Utah and yeah. Colorado, you go through the Rocky mountains. It's pretty, it's pretty wild. The rest of it's like cornfields and it gets, you know, dri driving is infinitely better than traveling on a train, but I never did it before. And, at, you know, when I was a kid, I used to, I loved that movie Silver Streak with yeah. Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. So I always wanted to do that, take a cross country. So, so I did that. And my friend Jason was like, well, you got to take my camera and film every, he gave me this Canon uh, DSRL, DSRL or DSLR camera. Um, he's like, take my camera with me, film everything. He's like, even when you're out there, you should interview like uh, the guys in the other bands and, and maybe do like a little thing about beyond. Like a, it, maybe it was going to be like a 15 minute thing or whatever. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's a good idea. So when I got out there, I was filming uh, like behind the scenes stuff, like that stuff, like that hotel stuff in the, that's in the film with, uh, with Vic and Tom. Yeah. You and guys like practicing, right? That, that filming them practicing and, and just, you know, acting like goofballs. 
And then I started interviewing, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of these people I had not seen in like a long time. So after catching up, I'd be like, listen, do you, do you mind sitting down for five minutes and, and interviewing? And everybody was really cool about it. Like, like everybody was awesome about it. And then I came back and I looked at the footage and I was like, this is amazing. I was like, I don't think I can really do something unless I expand the interviews. So the first person I reached out to was Walter Schreifels from Gorilla Biscuits, Keep It Today, Quicksand. And, uh, and he and I sat down for almost an hour and did a more extensive interview. Um, and Walter was really, you know, Walter and John Purcell from Youth of Today, uh, Judge, he, they were really, they were really uh, sort of crucial in getting Beyond's name out there. Like they, they, the two, between the two of them, they really opened a lot of doors for us. They had us opening up for all their bands. Like it was, um, so they were like, you know, they were really important people to, to have in the documentary. So once I got Walter's like hour long interview, I'm like, now I can really do something with some like meat and potatoes to it. And that, and then I was able to uh, reach out to Alan Cage, who used to play drums for us, who was, who's also the drummer for Quicksand. So he and Walter are still, you know, in touch. And so, and then I did Alan's interview and then it's just started snowballing. And then I had all these interviews. Have, you, a matter done, of have you done something like this before? Because it seems like such an undertaking um, or, or was it just trial by, by fire? It was both. I, I mean, I did, I did do, uh, I did do a political documentary that was uh i mean ironically enough it was about uh, not to talk bring about politics right now but it was it was about like voter suppression and stuff like that and um except from people who really had uh legitimate claims to that but uh <laughs> yeah i did this i did this i did this documentary and uh it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't that great. The, the limitations of it, uh, the person who produced it was not particularly helpful in paying for things to really make it happen. Like they didn't want us to talk to any of the people. They wouldn't pay for us to speak with any of the people who actually had their votes suppressed. Like we wanted to go into like the, you know, like the, like to go to Detroit and go to Milwaukee, like where, where votes were being tossed out and, in, in in black neighborhoods and stuff like that, we wanted to go. We wanted to go there and talk to these people, and they wouldn't pay for it. So the so the documentary wasn't really anything that. Um, but it was a it was a huge learning experience. Learning experience yeah, it was a huge learning experience. And then sitting down and doing this, I, the the plan was not from was not for me to edit it. Like initially, I had this roommate. Uh, I was sharing a loft space with someone in Brooklyn. And this guy was supposed to, he was, he was a professional editor and he was supposed to edit it. Unfortunately, when the pandemic hit, he, he was um, epileptic. So he was really nervous about like, if he got caught the coronavirus, he wasn't sure how he, so he, he actually, funny enough, he took off from Florida where his girlfriend lived. And I mean, the, the thing was he left New York for Florida and it turned out Florida was a lot worse place yeah. to be to ride out the pandemic yeah. but um but anyway he so i mean he was he wasn't really like someone you could really like count on like I, there were times i would be like hey you want to like talk about the movie or work on the movie and he would be like watching cnn like like on the flip side like like obsessing over donald trump and like uh talking about he would come in my room tell me how much he hated donald trump and I was like, that's great. I hate him too. But can we like work on this? Can we work, on, uh, can can we we work on this documentary? And um, 
you know, he, but he was like, a, he was like a pothead and, and stuff like that. And uh, so it, it, it was, it became clear to me that it was up to me to, to if I was going to make this movie, I have to. Yeah. Could you, you know, do, I guess like, I'm trying to like visualize it because I think it's such a fascinating thing. I would love to make a documentary. I would love to do a lot of things, but you know, it seems like it's, I don't know. We, we all love documentaries. You know, I could watch a documentary on paint drying. You know what I'm saying? So <laughs> it's such a like undertaking. And I, I'm, I'm trying to like picture, like, is it like, you know, if you format it like a podcast, because it's, you know, you're telling the story of this band that was so big uh, in, in like the formation of like your life, like the early years, you know? So it's, uh, I, I thought it was very well done when I saw it said like written, directed, edited, by Kevin, I was like, look at this motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think if you want to make a documentary, um, I think the, the probably the best approach to do it is to initially know know what you want, know what you, the story is you want to tell, um, like know like and then and then go from there. Um, you know, and a lot of, but I think a lot of it is just in the art of you learn in the art of doing. You know, like yeah. I didn't know anything about editing like a year ago, like from from now, uh, like a year ago, I was I was doing a loose edit. So this way I could give it to James and he could, you know, he could fix it up. Um, and then and then you, you're sort of forced. I was sort of forced to learn by just doing so, so like, pod, start like podcasting. Same thing with me. Like I just in the very beginning, I'm like, I think I know what I'm doing. And it wasn't until like maybe the 15th episode that I'm like, I think I know what I'm doing, you know, and you just exactly. Yeah. It's just you just keep doing it and doing it. And then one day you like look at it and it's not so bad and you show it to someone and then they make suggestions. And then those suggestions can either, you know, you, you have to find the right people to like who are going to be helpful like people who know what they're talking about, because sometimes people will give you suggestions and it's not about even the work that you're showing them. It's about them telling you how brilliant they are and knowledgeable, knowledgeable they are about everything. And that's not helpful. Like you want people who are going to give you helpful critiques, you know, but I was really lucky, like uh, Drew Stone, who did the New York Hardcore Chronicles. Yeah, yeah. He gave me, he gave me a really helpful critique. I showed him an early draft of the movie uh, my friend Nate out in Portland, I sent him, he gave me really helpful. So I, so I was, I had, I found the right people to really yeah. give me, uh, you know, and then I, and then I, uh, you know, and then, and then also my friend Dennis, who did the animation for the, for the documentary, oh, he yeah, was really, great. yeah, he was really helpful because he, he gave me a critique, but then he also offered his services as, as an animator and he really raised the 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 production value of the of the uh of the documentary that's cool yeah i mean and uh you know so somewhere along the way like when when did you feel like like it was coming together like uh you know like immediately because you talked to walter for an hour then you talked to alan and like at that point are you just like saying fuck it i'm gonna jump in i'm gonna do this and and what's it like to look back at that time, your life, cause it's such a, you know, at our age, you know, when you look back, it's like, it's fun, but sometimes it's almost like, you're like, oh wow, so much time has passed. Well, it, it, it doesn't seem like that long ago because at this point in my life, like the years are just flying by. Like I'm, I'm you know, I, I just moved to the country now. So at least, you know, I'm gonna try and slow things down a little bit because life is just going, you know, I'm, I really wanna like, enjoy my life so i'm trying to like slow things down so that was three years ago that that i started 
that that started. And um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I once I got into it, I was I was pretty focused. You know, I'm always pretty focused with all my projects. Like I'm always pretty focused, like whether it's music or film or whatever, I'm always pretty focused. So, so once I got that initial interview with Walter, then I knew that this could, you know, I'll just keep building. I'll reach out to Alan. Then I reached out to Sammy and then, you know, it just kept snowballing and snowballing. So it's just like, you don't question it too much. You just kind of like let it, you just let it go. And you, but you, you also have to like keep feeding the monkey, you know, you have to keep feeding it to keep it, to keep it going. So you just do more work and more work. And then, uh, you know, and then eventually you have a documentary, but I mean, it's not that easy. It was, it was a lot of work like this, especially this last, like since March, since the pandemic started, you know, it was from March until December, except for, I was sick for three weeks, except for that. I was, uh, I was working like 10 to 12 hour days. Like, did you get COVID? You said you were sick. Uh, I don't know if it was COVID, um, my, my test came out negative, okay. but at the time, but it was early on. So, so I, the tests were very unreliable back then. Yeah. Um, I was, I was sick. I lost like a little bit of weight from it. It was, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't fun. It was, a, it was actually a really unpleasant time, but that being said, uh, there weren't a lot of like respiratory issues mm-hmm. connected to it, which there, which it was, you know, but that was also still possible that it could have been COVID, um, but, uh, you know, there, you know, it took, it took about a month after that for the, the sort of like the residual sort of effects to like disappear. So it very well could have been, but, but maybe not. Um, What's but, up? Uh, the, the band. So the, the, basically the band lasted two or three years, right? So it starts in like 87 and goes to like 89, you said? To 89. Yeah. So what, yeah. you know, just so for, for anyone listening and even like me, like, I don't really know too much of the history. Um, why do you think it just came and went so fast? Like, was it just meant to be that way? We were just kids. That's the thing. It's like when you do a band, like with your, with your friends um, and your kids, you don't know how to make those like really good decisions. Think like, Oh, this is something really good that I should value. And um, you know, and, and maybe try and keep this band together. You know, we were, we were, we were 17 when we started the band. We were 19 when, when the band broke up, I was going to college um, you know, Tom and Alan weren't getting along, which uh, the, the funny thing is that Tom and Alan ended up playing quicksand with each other. So their, their lives were connected for the next 20 years after that. Yeah. But, but one of the reasons why we broke up is because they, they were not getting along. Like they were, uh, they were always fighting about everything. Was so music, uh, it was just, I think it was a personality thing, you know, like they you know, I think probably to this day, they're, they're, they're pretty much the same people. I mean, I don't, I don't know Alan as well as I did when I was 19 years old, you know, it was only that hour that I spent with him for the interview. And then we caught up a little bit afterwards. Um, but like Alan has always been a very serious person. Like, like we used to, we used to, he was, he was the adult and he was a year older than us. So he was the adult of the band and he was always making the adult decisions. Tom is like a very, um, he's very eccentric in his, in his, uh, sort of in his tastes in his behavior, you know, he's kind of, he's a very unique person. Like he's very unique person, um, which makes why his, he was able to do all this because he thinks 
he he has his own way of thinking, you know, and he was so he was able to write these very unique songs because, you know, he like there and that's what I think is really special about Beyond is that that it really has that Tom Capone stamp on the music. Like it yeah. could be influenced by Minor Threat, no, could yeah. be inf influenced by Bad Brains, but it's to me it sounds like Tom Capone because I know him and I know what a unique person he is, and that is reflected in like the music. Um, so, you know, they, I think it was just a personality thing. They just clashed. Like they just clashed. Um, and, and you, you know, towards the end, like, I mean, like, so, you know, cause you're so young. And at that point, like, you know, you don't think anything at 19, you're probably like, I know I was like, oh, I'll just live forever. So like, wh what did you end up just, you know, did 1.6 start right after? I don't think so. Right. No, no. Uh, I went to college in Arizona for a semester actually with Mike from 1.6 band, like, like he, 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 uh, I remained on Long Island. Those guys had moved to the city. And so all my, all, I still had the same friends from high school and Mike was, was talking about going to college in Arizona. So I was like, all right, I'll try it. I was going to Hofstra at the time. And, uh, I didn't particularly enjoy Hofstra. It was very conservative, especially in the eight, you know, like the late eighties, like the Reagan yeah. fan club was like a thing, you know? Um, so have you, seen, have you seen the Showtime Reagan four part docuseries? No, but I want to see it. I heard it's great. I, yeah. I, I watched the first two. I got to finish up the last two. It's uh, I, you know, like I'm, I was like, I don't know. I was super young. Like I was like probably like four or five around that presidency. But like, I remember, you know, you remember in, in retrospect and, and they did a really good job. The first two episodes are great. Yeah. I heard it's, I heard it's great. I, I mean, the thing is, is like, he's always, you know, celebrated as this hero. But if you think of like all, like not to get too political, but if you, you think of all the, the issues that have, that the, this country has suffered from since the eighties, it can all stem back to like the idea of trickle down at economics and all these tax breaks and all the, the deregulation that he imposed, which, you know, just caused like a lot of suffering for like a lot of people. Yeah, um, covered. And not to mention his influence on, on the current, administration you know i mean there was like if you look at, at trump's playbook like a ton of it came out of reagan's play playbook but just done to like the umpteenth degree you know which is <laughs> but uh um, yeah but sure. yeah so so hofstra was very conservative place so i went to arizona and i and i was you know that that would only last one semester and then when i came back you know mike didn't enjoy it either and he was playing with with Vinny and Lance, they had already started something and it was a little more rock than 1.6 band turned out to be. But then when I jumped in and, you know, everybody started listening to like a lot of the discord bands and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Then, then the music changed and it started to sound more like 1.6 band. Those um, bands, and, those bands were super, man. I remember when I first started hearing discord bands, like it was such a, especially on Long Island, it was such a, and it took me forever, man. I, I've mentioned this before where, I just couldn't understand a band that wasn't minor threat. I was like Fugazi. I'm like this. I don't want to listen to this. And somewhere around like maybe 2021, I kept hearing, you know, my friend had a cassette and we, when, anytime we were in his car, he would listen to repeater. And one day it just fucking clicked. And I was like, this is the most brilliant shit I've ever heard. <laughs> well, I don't know what happened. Maybe I just heard turn 2021 and it just like clicked. Or maybe because he played it not like, you know, when you like those old school cars, you only had one cassette. So you just listen to it. Right. Over over yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what did you think when you first heard Fugazi? Uh, I liked it. 
the first time I heard Fugazi, I think it might have been like the demo. I think they had a demo. Yeah, that, that was going. It was, yeah, it was going around. I think Beyond might have even still been a band, or just shortly after Beyond broke up. But it was around that time. I thought it was weird. You know, I didn't. It wasn't. It wasn't minor threat, and I was like. I figured I'd probably get used to it um, because I did. I also loved Embrace. I loved the Embrace record. So I knew, I knew that Ian was capable of doing things other than, you know, yeah. so, so I liked it, but I wasn't, I wasn't like totally amped on it the way I was my threat, but then eventually like Fugazi, like by like 91, like Fugazi was definitely like my favorite bands. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Something like that happened. So, and um, we talked about Brian Baker. Uh, did you check out the, his new band, Fake Names? I haven't. No. The only thing I saw, I saw Dag Nasty when they played at Brooklyn Bazaar, like maybe mm-hmm. like two years ago now, or like a year and a half ago. That was the only thing that I that I've checked out that Brian Baker's done recently. I know he has Fake Names, and he's got that Beach Rats, right? He's isn't he in that band Beach Rats? I haven't heard that, but like, um, so Fake Names is you know the singer Refused, uh, one of the guys from Embrace. And Brian, and, and it's great. It's just, it's like a oh, nice. It's like a yeah, it, and it's super catchy. Um, Dennis has a great voice. Uh, one one of like my favorite records of last year because I guess we're in this year now. Um, so where you know where could people watch the documentary? I know it's what, like is it Vim? What was it, Vimeo? It's on Vimeo. Yeah, they can go just go to my website, uh, whatawaitsus.nyc. The name of the documentary is What Awaits Us. Uh, a beyond story. And the, so I have a website, what awaits us.nyc. And, uh, and there are links to the Vimeo. I'll put, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll put the links up too. Um, awesome. and, and, and that's, um, that's a beyond song. So yes. Why, yes. That, why yep. did you choose that? You know, I, it was really finding a title for this movie was really tough. I, I went through a different, different song titles. And then like I was, so Tom, Tom had this famous saying, Tom was famous for calling everyone a sap back in the beyond days. So I was thinking of calling the movie, no saps allowed or doing something, you know, like a little more playful. And then if, but if I really think about what the movie is about, because it's not just about the history of beyond, there is the history aspect, but it's also about me as a 50 year old man now, like trying to figure out how beyond fits in my life, which it still does, you know, like we up until the pandemic, we were still playing, and we, you know, we still plan to play like once this thing's over, we start, we do plan on playing shows. Uh, so, it, you know, it was sort of like this existential sort of journey. I'm trying to figure out, you know, finding my place in that, you know, you know, making that connection again with the, with, uh, with Kevin beyond of 17 with Kevin of, you know, at 50. So, you know, it was what awaits us sort of refers to the future. And also there's this, you know, this sort of like this, underlying sort of fear of death thing that I have that is that is expressed in it's it was you know Tom wrote that song about his grandparents when they were they were elderly and he was he was thinking what are they thinking you know like that and and he wrote that and as a 17 year old person I saw it as singing it through the voice of somebody who was like in their eighties and like facing like whatever. But now as a 50 year old man, when I sing that song, I sing it like from my point of view, like a hundred percent from my point of view. Um, so, so that's one of the songs that still, that really resonates now as being like a 50 year old hardcore singer. Like, you know, I can still do it. I can still sing the songs. I could still, I still have the energy to jump on stage 
you know, I could, I still have the energy to push people away when they're trying to stage dive and crowd the stage. Like I could still do all of that, but you know, there is this sort of like impending doom that like, you know, there's nothing we can do, do about really. So there's, I think, you know, I, I think we all have that, man. It's, I think most of us do, um, you know, and to, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a bummer. And certain movies, I remember being like super young and watching, like, I remember being maybe like 10 or like, you know, and r- realizing that eventually we're all going to die. Cause like until then you don't have that thing. You don't think anything of it. And I remember specifically uh, watching the movie Miracle Mile uh, from 1988 and it is Anthony a, Edwards and Mur- Muriel Hemingway. Yeah. Uh, I forget uh, her last name. I forget. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, she, she's from St. Elmo's fire. Yeah. Yes. And so co- coincidentally, the, the next person that we're going to have on is the director of that movie. Um, From, of Miracle Mile? Yeah. Oh, no kidding. He That's did a that, great movie. Yeah. He, yeah. He did that. Cherry 2000. And uh, he, he, I think he wrote Strange Brew. Cool dude. Um, What's his name? Uh, Steve DeJarnet. We're friends on Facebook. Oh. And I tell him all the time. I'm like, yo, this movie gave me that impending doom. It was between that and They Live. I don't know why. Uh-huh. Those two movies made me... Yeah. Like they made me realize that we're like there's an expiration date, and probably because Mir- Miracle Mile is so fucking bleak. It um, is, yes. You know that it's just <laughs> yeah, man. It's 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 an ongoing thing, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's something I never want to think about, but it's it's there. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean it's true. I do think about it a lot. Um, Miracle Mile. I actually saw it. I think I saw opening day. Opening day. I saw it uh, at. I was working at the movie the united artists movie 13 on sunrise highway uh in patchogue nice. there was the, there was the patchogue multiplex yeah and i was working there and i used to get into movies for free so i used to go i mean that's how i really got into movies i just you know i would see everything and i remember yeah. seeing miracle mile and loving it and i couldn't convince any of my friends to go see it it's so good i it's one of those movies that like whenever you know you, we all have like you know you and i both love movies and um we all have that batch of movies that we try to like push because we, I feel like that movie never really got the love or recognition. When I, when I think of like, you know, like this like disaster or these movies that are just so fucking bleak, I'm like, yo, you got to watch Miracle Mile. And uh, it, funny enough, like I've, I've been nervous about asking Steve to be on. He hit me up because he had something to promote. And I, I'm like nervous. I'm like, yo, I'm like, this dude directed Miracle Mile. I'm like, I can't talk to him. <laughs> Man, to, I mean, just talking about, I mean, if he had something to do with Strange Brew, I mean, that's 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 like a good hour of two of content. You could talk, yeah, talk about he, that. I would love to hear, hear so about he, that. Yeah, man, he fucking, I forgot. He explained it to me. It was like a, a writing thing. Like he wrote it. And uh, he was going to direct it, but it, w- it was like some like legal thing. But I was like, yeah, cool, man. And he's he's so cool. Really cool on, on Facebook. Um, but yeah, so definitely. Miracle. That's awesome. That's awesome. I can't wait to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, listen, if you want to come hang out, we'll, we'll do we'll do a four way Zoom. We could talk about Strange Brew. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, but OK, so listen, um, I, I know I asked you to do a couple of things. So, um, you know, being that what awaits us is a music doc. I also yes. wanted you to, to, to give me like five of your favorite mu- uh, music docs, you know, that maybe inspired this or, or, you know, just shit that you love. So give them to me. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, there's actually really, you know, because music docs as much as like regular movies, like I love music docs. I, the, the funny thing is like, I don't really watch a lot of documentaries straight up. Okay. Like I know people love documentaries and it's funny that I made a documentary, yeah. but I, I, I just love like fictitious. I love movies that are written in fiction. You know, I think, and I, you know, I've actually talked to my therapist about it and like, I think the reason that the reason that is is because I need that buffer zone between like 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 too much reality is like just too much for me. You know, I okay. don't watch reality TV even though that's fake. Sure. And like you know, documentaries like um, I just I just I don't know. I just I just need you know I like I like I like watching. But music docs are the exception. I love I love music docs and like there were so many that I I made a list and there was so many to choose from and I couldn't. You know, I, I, I boiled it down to six. If okay. That's okay. Yeah. Whatever. Boiled it down to six. All right. So my list is on my phone, which I can't see right now, but I think I can remember them all. All right. So it's, uh, so stop making sense. The David Byrne, the, uh, the talking heads documentary, yeah. uh, directed by Jonathan Demi. It's a concert document. It's a concert documentary, but it, it really, and this is another thing that I, that I, you know, uh, my my documentary is very like is very narrative driven. There's a story there, sure. and the net and this and I try and keep the story going. There are a lot of doc- documentaries that don't have narratives, like the like the the not agnostic front documentary that came out like a year or two ago. That was really good. It, it was fantastic, and it, there was no like it wasn't like a, based on a narrative. It was more of like a portrait, which yeah. a lot of like true documentaries are just like portraits you know like the nook of the north which the first documentary was like a portrait of this eskimo and like that was a really amazing portrait of like roger and Vinny and their like their relationship together and their personality it was it was really fantastic i mean i would love to one day make like that kind of documentary out to ian mcfarlane man he made that he made the shit out of that we had him on if i rule the world it was so good yeah, it was re- it was really it, that was really great. But so so the the Talking Heads documentary, even though it's a concert film, it is like this really great portrait of that band. You get, you do get the essence of like all the players' personalities, and um, and of course like the music. And uh, I mean, I used to work at a video store in Texas only up to, up until two thousand and thirteen. I worked at this video store. I love video. They just closed this year because of the pandemic. Like there was, they were holding strong and they were community supported and it was a really amazing place to work. And one of my go-to picks for when it was my turn to pick something to watch while we worked was, uh, was Stop Making Sense because uh, you didn't always have to look at it. You, know, you had this amazing music that was going on all the time. And so I would, I would constantly watch that um, all the time. Uh, so after that, so then the other concert film, The Last Waltz, Scorsese's yeah. The Last Waltz, which, I mean, it's a kind of an obvious um, answer, but A, like, you know, there isn't anything Scorsese has done that I don't think is genius. You know, I, like, I love The Irishman. Were you one of the people that- I, I've, I've seen The Irishman five times already. Fucking great. I think, I think it was- I thought it was fucking amazing. Yeah, you know the the, the effects were a little weird. Whatever. People, but you know what? You watch Citizen Kane, and some of those effects look a little clunky now. But it's still one of the greatest fucking movies ever made. You it know? was only weird when like Robert De Niro kicked that guy in front of the store, and that's what could... everyone. That's the one part of the Irishman that everyone's that everyone has a problem with. Oh my! Like, he barely lifted his leg up. <laughs> I know. 
I know, but it was it was great, yeah. But uh, and last waltz, it, it's you know, it's this amazing exploration of like American music. And e even though after reading Lee Von Helm, the drummer for the band, after reading his autobiography, he talks about how a lot of the music was re was re-recorded the day after because okay. it they, it was the quality of the recording wasn't up to snuff, but they still wanted to keep the footage look great. So they. But he wouldn't do it. He was like, that's the show, whatever. But all the other guys, they went into it the, and they re-record. So, but whatever. I mean, it's still like, still lost. once yeah. you watch it, like it's the music is so infectious. Yep. And, uh, you know, it really is this sort of like time capsule of like, of all great 20th century um, performers like Muddy Waters, Neil Young and all these like great, uh, great musicians. Um, so after that would also another Scorsese documentary, because I think he's an amazing documentarian too, is the uh, the No Direction Home, the Bob Dylan No Direction Home. I didn't uh, see that. He, he did for PBS. It's, it's amazing. It's like three hours long. You know, it's like, it's about as long as The Irishman. Like it's pretty, <laughs> and it's, it's really amazing because if you, you know, if you see like Doc, Bob Dylan talking on like 60 Minutes with Ed Bradley, Bob Dylan has no respect for Ed Bradley. And you could just tell like some cheesy TV journalist and, and, you know, the fucking one of the greatest songwriters of the 20th century. And, um, and you could just tell, so Dylan's like mumbling and he's not, and he's not, he's throwing these like non sequiturs sort of, sort of just, you know, just weird sayings at him just to confuse the journalist. Yeah. And Scorsese is the only person that Dylan is really, truly like articulate with and the interviews that he does for those for that documentary it's like it's like you're taught like you have this you have this idea of bob dylan i do have this idea of bob dylan as being this sort of like mumbling sort of like jokester kind of guy who, you know his voice is blown and blah 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 and, and he's not what he once was and then you watch this movie and he's like fucking sharp as attack and he's clearly one of the most articulate people, but it's only because of the respect that he has for Scorsese that he is actually like giving that person, you know, so that's, that really made an impression on me. And it, it, it's, um, it's amazing when you think of like just the catalog, like, you know, years, it's like when you look at like certain catalogs and he has one of those where it's like, how did you write a hundred great songs? <laughs> Not even a hundred great songs. It's like, like 500 great songs. Yeah. You know, it was, He's really, I mean, for me, for my acoustic stuff anyway, he's huge inspiration, you know? I mean, the lyrics and the, the, the songs. up with $24,000, by the way? <laughs> That's one of my favorite names for any of the bands that I ever played in. <laughs> um, it was really something that was on the side of a bus one day. It was like, like you know, it was some class action, action lawsuit, like, you know, claim your $24,000 or whatever. I thought that would be a great name for a band. And at the time I was playing in a band called Good Looking Shoe with my friend Mikey and my friend, oh, John Sass. You know John Sass. Yeah, was it Mike, Mike Post? Yeah, Mike Post. We were playing in this band, Good Looking Shoe, but we didn't have a name yet. I remember. So I remember like the day we were going to play our first show. And I remember that day and I saw that bus sign and, and I tried to sell them on that name. And, uh, but we already had, we already sort of, sort of agreed to Good Looking Shoe. So we're like, all right, we'll go with that, which is, that was a funny name too. But $24,000, I was, that was always one of my favorites. So then when I moved to Texas, I was like, well, whatever band I do, I, I want to call it $24,000. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Just curious.
But uh, so the next movie would be the Amy Winehouse documentary, um, Amy. Like, I'm not really an Amy Winehouse fan. Like, I think she's hugely talented. Um, I like, you know, I like the production of her recordings that they did at the Daptone, um, like, studio. And, like, they had, like, the Dap Kings backing them up. Like, I like that stuff for that. I think I think a lot of her her it's too pop for me. I don't I don't particularly like pop music from like the last like 20 years or so. I, I think she did great because I feel like Mark Ronson his production style is so like I don't know it's just great. It's beyond pop music. Um I don't know if you've ever really listened to the Back to Black album, um uh, but it's it's really well written. Um, and that, that's one record I could listen to all the time, but it's you, it's really because of his production. His production is so fucking genius. You he's, know? he's great. And the, what the Bruno Mars stuff that he does, I think that's, yeah. I think that's like, I think you said like it, it transcends pop music. It's more than pop music. It's really, it's really, just really great musicianship on it. And he, um, he was a hip hop DJ. That's what he came up as he, in, in New York city. So he like his ear is just just unreal. So I'm a big fan. Yeah, yeah. No, he he's he's great, and and I think you know the uh, you know some of her music I really like. I heard there's a ska record. She did like a ska record that's supposed to be really great, uh, um, but I haven't heard it. Uh, yeah. But the movie was just devastating. Devastating. You know, it was devastating, and the fact that it was the there was no uh, uh, it was it was all interview like it was just interviews the, the, the entire movie it was just going from one person telling the story to another so there was a narrative to that and it was just you know and, and to be honest with you that might have I, I never even considered that that might have been a huge influence on my movie because really what I had at the end of the day was a lot of um interviews yeah and now I have to piece this and this person's going to tell this story and it's going to move to this part and that's exactly what that does but there's no voiceover you know, there's no, there's no, it's just, it just starts with interviews and the whole movie and the interviews carry the entire story of this really tragic life. And it was really, really powerful. Um, and again, like, I'm not really like that big of a fan of hers. Like I, like after watching it, you know, there's things that I appreciate. Um, but, uh, but the filmmaking I thought was really great. I just, yeah. that's whoever put that movie together. It was really powerful. Um, so after that, I'm, uh, uh, sorry, I'm trying to, yeah, I'll, I'll give you one. Um, just recently that Bee Gees documentary was fantastic. Like I I had no, so, you know, it it comes in like at the end of December, you know, I'm like making my list for favorite movies. So I, I left it out, but it's just like, I was, I, you know, to me, the Bee Gees were just the soundtrack. I didn't really associate them with anything. So as I'm watching this documentary, I'm realizing all the songs that I knew that they did. And just the storytelling was just amazing. Like, just what a great. It was, it, you know what? You know what was great about that movie was, um, I mean, it was like it was long. It was it was pretty in depth. And it was, you know, a lot of people didn't know that the Bee Gees were, were, were like a main uh, thing, even before yeah. Saturday Night Fever. They were yeah. they were they were, you know, they were huge and they were they had these amazing hits. Uh, but what I really loved about it was I walked away from that documentary singing Bee Gees songs for the next three weeks. You know, like that's all I did was just sing those songs after that. And that's, and it, you know, when I was making my documentary, I just wanted to make sure that people knew, people walked away from this documentary knowing what Beyond sounds like. You know, they, they knew what Beyond sounds like. They knew, they at least could, you know, they heard the names of our songs. 
and they could maybe like possibly identify it. And like, so that was, but that Bee Gees documentary, the same thing, like, um, you know, I, I, I shut it off and I was singing their songs all night and then it just kept going for like the next two weeks. I just kept singing these songs like in my head, you know? So that's, I mean, that's, that's just the sign of, you know, the sign of it. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that, yeah, yeah, that you said, you know, when you make this documentary, like, you know, people, there is like, you know, people will watch this documentary and, and even if they don't know beyond, they will, you know, so they'll go back and, you know, what, what I realize, what I like about documentaries and podcasts too, it's like, you keep these things alive in conversation. So you hear someone talk about something, you're like, yeah, I haven't seen Midnight Run in forever. I want to go watch it. And you keep these things that we love alive, you know, so whether it's beyond or, you know, the Bee Gees or Midnight Run, it's just like, you know, the conversations we have, like, you know, you'll be driving. I'm like, oh, when I get home, you know, like somebody posted uh, a picture in like the Facebook group of like um, to live and die in L.A., a movie I yeah. haven't thought about in forever. I'm like, I yeah. want to fucking watch to live and die. That's a play. great movie. Willem Dafoe is the is the villain in that yes. movie, right? Yep. Like, yeah, that's a great yeah. movie. Yeah. Well, Michael Mann, I think it was. No, uh, freaking William. Oh, Freakin, was it? Who did The Exorcist? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Oh, shit, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. No, it's a really it's a really great movie. Yeah. I was thinking William Peterson. I was like, oh shit. Wolfgang Wolfgang Peterson. No, no, the the actor. I was thinking. Uh, oh, I see. Oh, yes. Yeah. I associated right. him with with Michael Mann just because I'm thinking Manhunter. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. But um, but I was thinking of another documentary that that uh, I really loved was uh, this came out. I'm trying to think probably in the early in the early 2000s. It's called Standing in the Shadows of Motown, and it was about the musicians who played on the on the Motown tracks. Okay. You know, not the singers, but about the musicians or whatever, kind of like the, uh, the Wrecking Crew documentary Wrecking that was out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And this was great. And this, again, this was the same, you know, it was, it was done, you know, it was really well done. It had, it had interviews. It also had like a lot of recreations, like a lot of scenes of like their, their advent misadventures. They had like these sort of like recreations of them, which I thought was really, it's a really interesting thing to do. I, you know, I, I, I considered doing that for my, for my movie. But, but the fact was like, I mean, I don't know. It, you, you have to be a sk really skilled filmmaker to be able to do pull something like that off and not have it look cheesy. And these guys, whoever did the Motown documentary, they definitely, they pulled it off. But what's the, but the best part of that movie again, is that they have, they bring all the musicians together and then they have, um, they have Bootsy Collins sing a few songs he does Cool Jerk. I'm trying to think he does Cool Jerk. I can't remember what other song. And then, uh, what's her name? Uh, I can't remember her name. She's, she was, she's not uh, Joan Osborne. She's, okay. not, she's not my favorite singer of, sure. um, of the last like 30 years. Although, ironically, she actually was one of Tom Capone's old roommates. Tom Capone, Tom Capone shared an apartment with her with her at one point That's before either one of them were like established musicians. Yeah. But she actually sings. Uh, I'm trying to think. She sings like a spinner's the uh, spinner's song, and it's a really amazing performance. Um, so again, like I walked away from that documentary just with a lot of music in my head, you know, yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah. what I love about music documentaries, you know? Yeah. Anytime, especially Motown, like just the melody on all those songs, you know, cause you're a singer, I'm a singer. Um, man, when I think of like, just coming up with catchy hooks, like not many catchier than like those Motown songs. It's like, yeah, 
No, they're real. They're you know, it's like the Beatles and Motown. They really have the. They really like for some reason those songs are everlasting because because for some reason those melodies are just going to like be around for like three hundred years. Yeah. You know. I, yeah. So I'll add. I'll add another one. Um, one of my favorite music documentaries ever is um, on. Um, uh, the uh, Brian Jonestown massacre, the movie Dig. You ever see Dig? Uh, yeah, I saw Dig. Yes, yeah. fucking insane was Dig. Like, that was great. A I band like Anton Newcomb. It's it's amazing for me to watch someone. It's weird because he was so self sabotaging of his career and and this band that were. I don't know. It was just such a such a fascinating documentary on on basically what not to do. And uh, their rivalry with like the Dandy Warhols and man, I just, I watched it and it was just watching them like fight on stage. He was like kicking the guitar player, like just batshit stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, did, is he, what happened to him? Was, did he, did he, is he still around? Yeah, he's still around, but I, I think it's, you know, they had their, their moment and uh, yeah, you know. Yeah. I think he, he, he probably looks back at that footage and is embarrassed by it. I mean, I would be if I, absolutely that was, if that was me, you know, um, I remember watching, I, I remember seeing that movie at the Angelica when it came out, um, yeah, I love which that. however, however long ago that was, um, maybe. Yeah. It was, a, it was like around that time. And I liked it. I'm not, I'm not like a huge, I don't know if I own, I don't know, own any albums of them or like the Danny Warhols, but it was really, you know, like, again, I could watch anything, by um you know any like music documentary just because i think because i can re it, they're relatable you yeah. know like i relate to the people on stage like i've been in bands with people like that who like throw tantrums on stage and you know and um so i you know that somehow like i kind of like relate to it um but i would love i always love the fact that um uh Boardwalk and Boardwalk Empire used that Brian Jonestown massacre song for their opening. Yeah, uh, with the with the all the bottles in the ocean and Steve Buscemi uh, like walking away on the beach. You know, it's funny. I never really catch. I never caught that. I love the show. I'm gonna have to re. I'm gonna have to revisit that because I, I I didn't know. Yeah, that. I mean, I'm almost positive it's them. I'm almost positive it's it's them. And and Terrence Winter purposely said he didn't want any like period music. He wanted something more like postmodern. Where like it was, I like you know, when they, kind of. I like. I'm when sorry. They, I like when they do stuff like that. Like, I love that. I love uh, it. So I was watching um, Lovecraft Country yes. on HBO, and they had that. So it was like this, like period piece and Lovecraft and all this other stuff. Um, but the songs every now and then were modern, and some people gave that criticism I, I i think my girlfriend didn't like it i'm thinking like i don't care i'm like i'll hear cardi b playing or whatever the fuck they had i don't know there's something about it, like it doesn't have to be entirely you know you could have certain period pieces match up with that but like other scenes it just the direction the cinematography and like the modern music really worked on that show for sure yeah they did the same thing with uh good lord bird did you see oh. that the uh I Ethan Hawke show. I was going to. I, I I heard it's amazing. It's amazing. It's it was one of my favorite things of of 2020. Um, it was really great, and they did the same. It, it was about John Brown and uh, you know being an abolitionist and, and yeah. you know trying to just he was he was a catalyst to starting the Civil War, and but they would cut to like hip hop songs or like pop songs from the 60s along with like period stuff yeah. and. But I listened to an interview and he was saying 
that, you know, they really want to get a point across that A, these issues in 1860 are similar to the issues that are happening now, you know, and that there really is no uh, past, present, future. Everything's sort of happening at the same time. So, you know, they want to draw, you know, by, by mixing the music, they were kind of like, they were trying to draw the, the similarities between then and now. And I think well, it worked. I, think it was, I love it that. Was, and and yeah. I think, I feel like Ethan Hawke really hit a nice, second part of his career he's been doing a lot oh, of definitely movies. yeah his the the blaze foley movie i really love too speaking the, of um, that did you ever watch tales from the tour bus on cinema the mike Judge no movie? no no do you know what it is tales from the tour bus uh i don't know it's don't mike know. judge so and no one watched anything on cinema cinemax like if your show was on cinemax i feel like it always like uh, unless you ended up with that package so Mike Judge put together two seasons of um, the first one was Outlaw Country and the second one was, um, you know, funk musicians. And he would tell a story of these musicians. Uh, and one of them was Blaze. Like it was just like these outlaw country dudes that were completely out of their mind and it was animated. And he would tell this story and it was so goddamn good, man. I, I it, it's just a shame that it was on Cinemax. Maybe it's on HBO Max. You know, because I know they merged a lot of stuff. Uh, but Tales from the Tour Bus, if you ever get a chance, watch some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, no, I'm a huge Blaze Foley fan. I, I love, I love. you know, it's a shame that he only put out like a little bit of music. He only, I guess, friends and I were just talking about it. He he only put out one record, and and uh, which is hard to find because I don't even have it. I only have, he had live performances that have been released like over the last 20 years that I was able to, um, but his, but he's a great songwriter and, you know, someone who, I don't know how old he was when he died, but he was, he died young um, before he could really like, you know, be an established musician, which was, you know, a tragedy. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, I don't think, I can't, to be honest, I can't remember the last two movies that i mean unless you want me to i can i can scroll on my phone to try and find no, i mean it's, it's fine um so you yeah. know just wrapping up here um you know like our podcast is pure minutia we're 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 pop culture we're music we're movies um so i know in your documentary you mentioned um a lot of no saps allowed and then the other thing that you mentioned a lot of was iron maiden which is a band that i fucking love we did a special episode. Me, Ron Grimaldi, and a few like other people did a full Iron Maiden episode. Um, so I thought it would be fun to ask you, in closing here, um, since it was mentioned in What Awaits Us, uh, give me your three favorite Iron Maiden albums, and then I'll give you mine. Yeah. Um, you know, this is something that for the last 30 years, you know, it, it just been stewing, you know, inside of me because because there'll be one day I can give you three different Me too. answers, you know? Um, but today, you know, I mean, killers, uh, killers, I think is their best record. Killers is my number one. I think, I think killers is the best record. It's, it's the most consistent record too. every song in killers is great. I love the, the, the production on those Paul Deano records are, it's so raw, like so raw. Deano's voice is so raw. Clive Burr on drums. I think, I do think Clive Burr was the better drummer because Nico Nico brings a lot of flash to it, but but Clive Burr hit harder than than uh, Nico. Um, 
So Killers, I think, is is number one. Uh, my number two record is. I was going to say um, Rap Child. So I before you yeah, finish, exactly before you finish there. Um, so the first cassette I ever bought was Killers. So like I completely agree. It's like I had no idea that they had two different singers by by the time I bought it. But I mean, when I heard like Rap Child and like Murders in the Room, like just that record is so fucking good, and it's still yeah. holds up. So. The song, the songs are the songs are amazing. Um, the, it's just, it's the most solid. It's the most solid of their records. It's along with, I, I, I do like these last couple of years. I've really, really grown to appreciate Number of the Beast as being one of their best records. Like it's, it's another record. Number of the Beast is a record where not there's not one bad song on it. There's not one song that I skip over. Um, it's solid through and through. I and you know, even though I I prefer Killers and Deano's voice is so raw, like the older I get, the more I really just appreciate Bruce Dickinson as a singer. Like he yeah. is just unbelievable. Like the gymnastics that he does as a vocalist, just so. and he's still yeah, and he, yeah, he I, I, I went to see him last year. Yeah, and my friend it was my friend Rob was getting married, and I took him. It was like like the weekend before I took him to see Iron Maiden. It's like a it's like a going away present. And uh, I couldn't believe like like Dickinson was still like yeah. killing it. Like just one of the most amazing live performances like from vocals I ever saw. So that made me really sort of like revisit Number of the Beast. And Number of the Beast is just solid. Like this, there's not one bad song. And the production, that I think production, I think that's sort of like where they peak production wise. Like I think Number of the Beast is really great. Um, you know, yeah, just the songs like Clyde Burr is still with them. Um, and then number, I guess number three would be Power Slave, even though for me it was a toss up between Power Slave and the Iron Maiden, the, the record Iron Maiden. Um, Power Slave, just because it had the most impact on me because I was, I was 14 when it came out. And it was, I just remember the explosion of how huge it was. Like it really, for me, that's where like Iron Maiden like really peaked. You know, it was just, they were so, they were so popular and um, it's a great record. I don't listen to a certain part of the record. Like I, and I do this with peace of mind too. This is why these two records would never make my, uh, my top uh, three lists is I skip over uh, the duelist, the song, the duelist um, Power Slave is an okay song. And then Back in the Village, I skip over that. So there's two songs on Power Slave that I skip. And there's two songs on Peace of Mind that I skip. To Tame a Land and Quest for Fire. I never listen to those songs. Yeah. Um, so that's why those records would never be like in like, you know, whatever. But but the the songs that are on Power Slave, like Two Minutes Midnight, yeah, yeah. Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, Flash, Flash of the Blade. Blade. Yep. Like, Rhyme of the those, Ancient Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those songs, those songs, um, those songs will forever be like in me and like made a huge impact on me when they when they came out. So and I mean, man, what an album cover um, that was, you know, like just like the Egyptian thing. Like it was just so, so cool. Like all that, like like visually as a kid, that's what I first saw, you know, like I would. Yeah. See like when I went and bought, you know, the cassette is because I saw Killers and I'm like, this has to be cool, you know? Yeah. And yeah. The, the two that I bought 
ended up being like my two favorite, which had to be, maybe it's the association when you buy something, at, you know, like as a kid, it just, I don't know, like maybe it's the first thing that I listened to because it was Killers and funny enough, Seventh Son. <laughs> Seventh Son, yeah. Yeah, I bought Seventh Son because, because uh, you know, my friend Rob, who I took to the Iron Maiden, he loves that album and you were talking about how great it was. So I bought it, I gave it a shot. Like I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sold on it, um, but, but ironically, uh, the first song on the Beyond album, Save Ourselves, was influenced by a song, I can't remember the name of the song, but it was influenced by the name of the song on Seven Sun that because Tom is really into that record. Okay. He really loves that record. I just, I um, love, yeah, the songwriting to me, like, man, when I hear, but it's very different. So, you know, they really got proggy on uh, like uh, somewhere in time. Somewhere in time. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then, then they got like more song oriented on Seven Sun because you hear like Infinite Dreams. Um, and it's funny, we were just talking about like dying. <laughs> you know so that that those lyrics really made me like also like and it's funny because i was 88 too the same year as miracle mile so maybe my mind was it was being hammered by mortality by the by that record yeah. uh but listening to infinite dreams you know the prophecy is on there um clairvoyant it, it just i love those songs but it was also the first one that i got and then Killers, I fucking loved. And I had no idea that there were two different singers until I got it. Um, so th those would be my number two. Um, and uh, I, I would probably go Power, um, uh, Peace of Mind. Peace of for, Mind. For the third yeah. record, because it's- It's just... a great record. It's a great record. It is. Um, it's it's just those, those two, like side two, for some reason, like I'm, you know, it, it just always bored me. But, and, but I mean- you know, the Trooper, which is one of the greatest fucking uh, yeah, oh yeah. Iron Maiden songs and and Revelations, Flight of Icarus, like all Flight those. Icarus, songs, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah, yeah. But man, I just a, a great band and, and I love them. So I just wanted to ask you that. Um, but yeah, Kevin, you know, we'll, we'll check out the documentary. I'm glad awesome. I finally got to do this. Uh, yes. We'll, we'll put the links up. And uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, you said you were going to do a podcast. No, I'm just thinking of, you know, I was, I was thinking about it when the, when the pandemic first struck, you know, I was like, you know, cause then I got, I was put out of work and I was doing in my, my, uh, I was doing my movie, but you know, I'm just always looking for projects just to like do, you know, I'm just constantly like working on stuff. So I did have this idea and then, but then like, I was like, Oh, do, do are they people going to do it on zoom? Are they doing podcasts on zoom now? Like I wasn't sure. And then I just got so, engrossed in my movie that i just you know that was never like a thing you know but, it, but i mean who knows you know i'm not you know i'm you know i'm not opposed to it i you know i always want to do something that's more uh based on movie like i always get my fill with the music yeah. side of me you know I, there's always music to play there's, i always have a guitar i can always book shows when before the pandemic you know and i can always get but you know i have this like love of movies that i just you know i feel like i keep to myself a lot of the time you know so i do i have thought about um, yeah any anytime you want to come back and talk about you know like every now and then we'll do like a deep dive on a movie uh yeah you know if if it works out with your you know if we pick a movie that you like come back awesome that would be great mm -hmm. thanks for having me man i appreciate i really really appreciate uh, one, one last question yeah what, what is the best honeymooners episode uh 
Well, my favorite episode is the uh, the blabbermouth episode when the, when the mother in law. Yeah, um, you're cool. Yeah, my yeah, Buttercup. Buttercup. Yeah, yeah, that whole that whole thing with the record and Norton <laughs> like crying, and uh, you know, I I love that's my favorite episode. But I mean, but maybe the greatest episode is has to be like the ninety nine thousand dollar episode, like the, or the when he's on the ninety nine thousand dollar answer. Yeah. Uh, or when he uh, or when he receives fortune, the fortune, yes. Or, yeah. or Sunny Boy, <laughs> or Harvey. Oh, you're gonna get your friend. Harvey. Yeah, Harvey's another great. Yeah, <laughs> my dad always quotes Harvey. He's always like Harvey. <laughs> Why do you think that show? I always come to the like, I watch it, and I always think to myself like, Why is this still funny? Like some shows don't age it's, well. No, it's it's that's gonna be that show's gonna be around for it's it's really smartly written so uh, one of the writers is leonard marx i think his name was leonard marx he was groucho marx's son okay and he was so he had he had that talent written so the writing is just stellar i mean the i would say the writing is comparable to like the writing on seinfeld like it's like in between the honeymooners and seinfeld there were not too many sitcoms that were as perfectly uh constructed the way those those shows were constructed. Um, so the writing, and I think the, just the magic of, of, uh, of Ralph and Alice, you know, like the chemistry. Magic, yeah, the, they, four, the four of them, you know, and you know, as a kid, whenever I would see them in something else, like it was a treat for me. Like when yeah. I saw the toy, I'm like, that's fucking Ralph. That's Ralph Cramden. You know, yeah. like whenever yeah. I would see Ed Norton, I'd be like, oh man, Ed, like I just, I didn't care. I just knew that they were in this movie. And I yep. went to watch it because I fought, like I grew up watching those two guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, Smokey and the Bandit. I remember when Smokey and the Bandit came out, and I remember like my I'm like, oh my gosh, the guy from uh, Honeymooners, Jackie Gleason's yeah. in it. But my mom's like, you're not gonna go to see that movie. But then it came <laughs> on cable, and then you know, so like, I mean, you know, this just goes to show like Jackie Gleason, you know, how like well rounded of an actor he was. You know, he yeah. could do he could do. Uh, you know, the sweet, uh, lovable bus driver. And then he could do like the racist, yeah. you know, yep. <laughs> foul mouth, you know, sheriff, you know, Southern sheriff, you know. It, um, it's great. Yeah, I just, you know, I know that we both love that movie. So I wanted to ask you, um, but yo, thank you. Thank you for doing it. Um, Thanks, man. I'm going to probably put it out Monday. Uh, you know, I'll, I don't think I really need to edit, edit anything out of this. So it'll probably just drop as is. Yeah, I I don't I'm sure if I listen back I'm gonna hear myself say uh and and you knows a lot which I've yeah. been trying not to do yeah but uh you know that's that's hopefully the more of these things I do the the less I'll do that but sure all, all right. right thanks man yeah. I appreciate it awesome Later. all right be safe bye all right take care. <laughs>
Let's go.